Uh, I have the privilege of uh, introducing a friend of mine, a relatively new friend of mine named Pastor Alan Platt. Uh, Alan comes to us all the way from South Africa. He was brought in about a year and a half ago when Calvary was going through their transition as somebody uh, that they needed to talk to to really take that and make the most of it for the kingdom. And so they brought him in for about three days. And, and at the end of the three days, they said, man, you know, you need to come back uh, in for like three months. And um, that's not a little ask. He's the founding pastor of a church called Doxodeo in Pretoria. They have 11 campuses in Pretoria. They have five other campuses in other cities in South Africa. And then they have three international campuses on top of that. So it's not like he had three months empty in his calendar somewhere. And nevertheless, he went back and he prayed about it with his leadership team and with his family. And he said, yeah, you know, I'm going to come back uh, for three months. And that's really when I had the opportunity to meet him in several different meetings, and we've met one-on-one and so forth. And at the end of the three months, kind of that same group circled back and said, hey, you know, um, maybe you should just move here. And, uh, and uh, so as of January, I think, his primary residence will be here in South Florida with us. And the wonderful thing about telling his story is that he's going to come up in a second. He can fix it if I mess it up. So, um, but let me tell you uh, why I'm so excited. I'm excited uh, because what he has discerned is that God is at work in South Florida. And he knows, he has eyes for that because he has seen it in his city. He has watched his city and been a part of a group of guys who have led a church collaborative movement in his city that have done amazing, incredible kinds of things. The kinds of things you look at and you go, my goodness, the church should do stuff like that. And we can't even imagine it. And yet in Pretoria, that's been happening. And as he came and consulted with Calvary and started meeting with us and came for another three months, you know, what the Spirit, I think, was saying to him is, man, you know, the ingredients for that kind of a thing, although they're 20 years ahead of us, but the ingredients for that kind of a thing are here too in South Florida. And so behind the scenes and in front of the scenes to some degree, that kind of stuff is going on where we're crossing denominational lines and every other kind of line to come together in relationship and to say, you know, we agree on most things. We understand what our distinctions are. But we're brothers and sisters in Christ, and for the good of the city, we want to serve the city in the name of Jesus. And so it's my privilege uh, to welcome Pastor Alan Platt to come on up. Thanks, Tom. Bless Thanks, you. brother. Well, thank you so much, Tom, and uh, good day to you all. It's a delight to be able to speak to you, this church. As I've uh, uh, navigated the uh, terrain here in South Florida, this church has such a reputation of uh, being such a pillar of grace and strength, and uh, your, your leaders are, are so respected in this, in this whole region. And so for me, it's such a privilege to be introduced to you and have the privilege of sharing with you the word this morning. Uh, I truly sense that God is up to something very special within the, the Broward County, but also the Tri-County, the South Florida region. And as we've been consulting with various leaders from different denominational backgrounds, Every single one that I've spoken to is sensing that it's a season where God wants to do something new, fresh, and unique through the church in this particular region. 
And so it's a delight for us to have the privilege of coming alongside what God is doing. And uh, we will be creating a secondary base in uh, this region and uh, spending some of our time coming alongside uh, just the dialogue of God's grace and His goodness. You know, in, in Africa, we have a saying, it takes a village to raise a child. Now, I know you've heard that here too. But what it means for us is that your environment, your context in which you discover the world, in which you discover life, has a distinct influence on how you interpret your reality, your worldview, your values, your beliefs, your convictions are all formed by your context, your environment, by your village. Your village determines how you interpret things. I mean, coming here to the U.S., it's fascinating for me. It's so different than back home. I mean, here, you play your football with helmets on. And you drive your motorcycles without them. I mean, how crazy is that? And so your village has determined certain things. And you think it's right. But it's more than just helmets. It's, it's how people engage in their reality. So if it's true that it takes a village to raise a child, the question bodes... Who raises the village? Who determines what our village will believe? Who determines the value systems of our context? And I'm here to share with you this morning that I believe that the church, God's people, the representation of the kingdom of God within this context has not only the opportunity but has the mandate to engage our world so that we can affect our village and by affecting our village we can affect the lives of people and so in sharing this with you i i draw from our own story uh, in 1994, the South African context changed drastically. As many of you know, it was a, a country that was known for apartheid. A system that kept people away from one another. In 1994, a new democratic order was established in South Africa. At that stage, I was ministering to a, a group of people that were predominantly Caucasian. They were settlers from Europe that had lived their whole life in an isolated way. And it's in that context that we deeply were challenged to mobilize our constituency to take responsibility 
to engage the new reality. And it's within that context that God started speaking to us about what does that mean if we wanted to engage our reality, the, the world that was changing so rapidly around us. And God spoke to us in various ways, but one of the more distinct ways God spoke to us was from the Bible, a portion of Scripture in Mark chapter 6, where Jesus was feeding the 5,000. And in that particular story, there are certain key principles that stood out and arrested our hearts and aligned us to position ourselves as God's people for greater influence within our community. And so I want to share this morning three of those principles with you as we've navigated this journey. I trust that somehow some of those elements that, that, that really challenged us will challenge you, not just individually this morning, but also as a faith community, as a church. And so the first thing we discovered was that we needed to change somehow in our mentality. If you read that story, you will see the disciples, well, they saw the challenge and immediately had deep concern. They saw 5,000 people that were hungry. And and they looked at this challenge and were immediately confronted with their own inability to be able to make a difference. They immediately were aware that they did not have the resources. And so the way they wanted to address this problem was, was to send it away. They go to Jesus and they say, Lord, the people are hungry, they need food, let's send them away. And somehow we discovered ourselves in the disciples. We recognized that, that that's how we were functioning as a faith community. We were concerned. We were concerned about so many things. Concerned about the, the new dispensation. Concerned about the brokenness in our society. Concerned about the sinfulness. Concerned about so many things. But we were so overwhelmed that we didn't think that we could make a difference. But when they speak to Jesus, the Bible says Jesus had compassion. And Jesus says, we're going to give them something to eat. And it was this distinct difference between the disciples having concern and Jesus having compassion. And so we, we started asking this question, what would it mean for us as individuals, for me as a leader, as for us as a church, to move from concern to compassion. Well, fundamentally we were challenged on so many levels, but the, the first area that we were deeply challenged was, was the way that we were looking at our world. You know, I, I grew up as a conservative evangelical that... Um, really was grateful that Jesus was in my life and I was on my way to heaven and I really didn't like the world. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite scriptures was, I am not of this world. 
And then one day I recognized that that particular text was in a bigger context. And this context was John 17. As you heard this morning, the prayer that Jesus prayed just prior to him laying down his life and leaving this world. Jesus prays, and when he prays, he says, I'm not just praying for these disciples, I'm praying for all of them that are far off that will believe in their word. In essence, Jesus was including us in that prayer. Listen to what Jesus prays. In John 17, we start reading it from verse 15. Jesus prays, I do not pray that you take them out of this world. But that you keep them from the evil one, they are not of the, this was my favorite part, they are not of this world, as I am not of this world, sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth, but then, as you have sent me into this world, I also have sent them into the world. Was it this amazing reference of, of us not being of the world, but having this mandate, this commissioning to position ourselves within the world. I struggled with this portion of Scripture until one day I got a revelation. And I got this revelation while I was trying to set my dog free from fleas. So I share with liberty the parable of the fleas. My dog had fleas and I decided I was going to start at the tail end and I was going to comb through the hair of the dog and every flea that I could find I was going to set my dog free from. I don't know if you've tried it, but it's a pretty challenging exercise. While I was busy doing that, a friend of mine arrived, asked me what I was doing, and I explained to him my project. And he looked at me and he said, but Alan, why don't you just go buy a flea collar at the store? I thought, well, there's an idea I never thought about. So I went to the store, got the flea collar, put it on the neck of the dog, and within three days, all the fleas are gone. I'm intrigued. I'm, I'm fascinated. I'm trying to figure out how does this system work? I mean, how did the fleas at the tail end know there is now a collar around the neck of the dog and it's time for them to get off? How did they know it was a flea collar? I did not explain it to them. I had the instructions with me. So I had to go back to my friend and say, explain to me how this works. He said, Alan, it's pretty simple. He says, on this flea collar, there's a powder, and when the dog moves, the hair brushes against the collar, the powder is released, and it sits on the skin of the dog. It's then assimilated through the skin, and it gets into the bloodstream, and now it builds up an immunity in the bloodstream, and now as the blood circulates through the dog, when the, the flea at the tail end bites the dog, the flea dies, and the dog lives, and I said, hallelujah, I now understand John 17. Because this is what Jesus was praying, right? Father, I do not pray that you take them out of the flea nest of this world. 
put them right in between the fleas. New translation, okay? But, but listen. But do something to them. Sanctify them by your truth. Let truth so find opportunity in their lives. Let truth so become real in them so that they can identify with this truth in such a measure that it builds an immunity within them, builds a capacity within them that when they enter into the world, they are not intimidated by the world, but they will affect their world. And suddenly I realized this is the reason why we gather so often to sit around the Word and, and, and be taught and allow the truth of our identification in Christ to be established in our lives. You see, because when you understand that you died with Christ, your old life was buried with Christ, but you were raised with Christ. Christ into resurrection life, into newness of life, and you are now sharing in his triumph to sit with him as, as the one that shares the victory and the triumph in Christ. When you know who you are in Christ, when truth takes hold of your life, it changes the way you engage life. And suddenly, I became aware that God was challenging us to understand that truth was not just to prepare us for heaven. Truth was to prepare us for life so that we could engage this world, so that we could live in this world. And then I recognized that, that God was wanting us to equip our people in such a way that when you leave here this morning, you will be equipped with truth in a way that you will be empowered to represent the kingdom of God in a new dimension everywhere you go. This week, suddenly we became aware that people are not coming to the church for a program. They are the program. They are the carriers of truth. And so if you're a teacher and you leave here, you leave as one that is commissioned, one that is sent, one that is the extension of this body of Christ in the classroom and you go as the Adam of God and that becomes your garden and you guard and you tend it and whatever you do there is this church now ministering to this community tomorrow. But many times we are like the people of Jerusalem. You know, the people of Jerusalem, they really loved Jerusalem. Because it was the city of God. It was Jerusalem. Shalom, meaning wholeness and health and welfare and safety and soundness and tranquility and prosperity. The fullness of God 
You see, shalom for the Jew was not just the absence of the negative, it was the presence of the fullness of God. And Jerusalem was this construct that, that needed to express, to show forth the shalom of God. Oh, and they loved Jerusalem. But there was another city in the Bible Right from Genesis all the way to Revelation, about 450 times in the Bible, that was the antitype to Jerusalem. It was Babylon. Babylon was everything that Jerusalem was not. It was, it was the city of, of man, of flesh. It represented another dimension of life. And the Jews despised Babylon. As a matter of fact, if a Jew wanted to insult you, he would say, man, go to Babylon. Babylon was everything that Jerusalem was not. And then the unthinkable happens. The Babylonians come and they conquer Jerusalem and they break down the temple and break down the walls of Jerusalem and they take the people of Jerusalem all the way as exiles to Babylon. Here they are in Babylon. They can't believe what's happened to them. They don't want to be there. They're sitting there at the river. The Bible says they hung up their harps on the willows. They're sitting there and they're sulking and they're dreaming about going back to Jerusalem. And it's within that context that the Babylonians come to them and say, Hey, we hear you guys sing such beautiful songs. Don't you want to sing us a song? They say, By the rivers of Babylon, how will we sing a song in a strange land? It's as if they're saying to themselves, How can we exercise that which is spiritual, that which is so precious to us in Babylon? How can we give expression to our spirituality, to our, our sense of God's presence in Babylon? You see, many times that's the way we think about our spiritual life. We think about our calling. We think about God's engagement in our lives. We isolate it. We bring it to church. We, we have our gatherings. This is where we give expression to our spirituality. And somehow God wants to challenge us to consider how it finds expression in Babylon. You know, coming to South Florida, I think that's the closest to Babylon you can get. <laughs> Here you are, in this context. And it's within that context that God speaks to His people. And he speaks to, through the prophet Jeremiah, and we read about that in verse 11. We, we often quote verse 11. We actually prayed it this morning, and listen to what it says in verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I think about or toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of shalom, of peace, and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. 
This is what God speaks to them while they are in Babylon. They don't want to be in Babylon. They want to get out of Babylon. They want to go back to Jerusalem. And it's within that context that God says, I know I have thoughts for you. And the thoughts that I have for you are incredible thoughts. But it must have been verse 7 that rocked their world. Because listen to what it says. And seek the peace. The shalom of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive. Lord, do you want to tell me you're in this? You know, I don't know you, but I know some of you probably go to work not necessarily extremely excited. You have this idea of what you really want to say to your colleagues and your boss. And God is saying, hey, maybe it's time to think. Seek the shalom. Seek the peace. Seek the wholeness. Seek the restoration of the place where I have put you and prayed to the Lord for it, for in its peace, you will have peace. The challenge for us all starts by starting to understand that God has a plan and a purpose and that His plan and purpose He wants to manifest through His people. And it's within this context that we started thinking, Lord, but how do we do that? Where do we start? I mean, how do you engage a community that is far from God, that is broken, damaged, and has so many challenges? Well, it's within that context that God spoke to us the second principle, and that was to give us some strategy. It's amazing when we look at the, um, the people, 5,000 of them sitting out there, and Jesus calls his disciples and says, go and break this group into groups of 50s and 100s. Now, they weren't trained in crowd control. Now they have to go and break this group up. This, these people have been in the sun all day. They're hungry. And if anything like my wife, you don't mess with her if she's hungry. And now they have to break them up into smaller little groups. And the disciples were so diverse. They were so different. I mean, can you just see John, John loving, tender-hearted John. He's one of the disciples. He has to go break up this group. I can just see him going, guys, would you? My, I know. I'm so sorry. It's such an inconvenience. Please forgive us. We have to do this group. Yeah, more or less, 50s, 100s. And then you see Peter. Groups. 50s, 100s. When I say move, you move. I mean, these guys are so different. The personalities are so different. But here's the amazing thing. If you read the Bible, guess who are the two guys that are always hanging together? 
Peter and John. Oh, I like the other two disciples, Philip and Thomas. I mean, Philip is this, this naive, believe it all disciple. I mean, you read about him in the Bible. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Oh, show us the Father. It'll be okay for us. And then there's Thomas. He's a little more cerebral. He's a little more rational. He's a little more, you've got to understand what you're talking about. He was a little more Presbyterian. It's amazing if you go and look who the two guys hanging together. Philip and Thomas. The guys I really liked was um, Simon the, the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. You've got to understand, these two guys were on the two opposite ends of the political spectrum. The tax collector was the guy that was in cahoots with, with Rome. He was taking money from God's people and putting some in his pocket, of course, but he was supplying the money to the oppressors. He was the sellout. On the other hand, you had the zealots. The zealots were these, this, this incredible group of nationalistic committed people to the ideals of Israel, and they hated the tax collectors. And so Jesus says, I'm going to pick my disciples. He says, I'll have one of them, and I'll have one of them. Bring them together. Folks, you know what? This is what we're starting to see across the body of Christ. You see, when Christ becomes, and his mission becomes the central focus, it starts bringing people together in spite of our differences. And this is the amazing thing that we're starting to see. God is bringing people together in this region. There's a new strategic process in which we can see we can feed this community. But God is bringing us together as his disciples to do something unique in this time. And then the third thing we see is Jesus challenging them to start breaking the pieces. Here's the amazing thing. They've just broken up this group into fifties and hundreds. And here they're standing looking at Jesus. And Jesus takes the bread and the fish, this little bit of lunch that he has, and, and he blesses it. And then the amazing thing, he doesn't go and break the bread and build a big reserve behind him so that the disciples can feel really secure. You know, at least now, you know, reserve matches need. He doesn't. He blesses it. He breaks it. And he puts it into the hands of the disciples. And he looks at the disciples and he says, go feed the people. I can just see those disciples. Can you feel the tension in that moment? You know, many times we read Bible stories, we, th we think, you know, it was so easy for them. You know, oh, well, they're with Jesus. Of course, you know, it's easy. They'll just go and feed the people. They've never seen anything like this. They're, all they have is this. 
I see that disciple going down to the group of 100 and deciding, let's rather start with a group of 50. I see him breaking that first piece. I guarantee you that first piece was a small piece. Why? He's a smart disciple. This stuff's got to last. See him breaking another piece. Can you imagine the first guy that got the first piece? So this is it, huh? Breaks another piece. Breaks another piece. As he's breaking the pieces, becomes aware there's something amazing. And he breaks a bigger piece. And then he breaks a bigger piece. And he realizes there's something unique here. And so he tests it and breaks a real big piece and, and breaks another piece. And, and we see them then breaking pieces and giving it to the people so much that there was 12 baskets left over after everybody had had enough to eat. Here's the principle. Just Start breaking the pieces. You see, many times we think, what can we do? You know, where can we start? And we, we sometimes have these lofty ideas of these big things that we need to do. Jesus taught us the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It starts off by just taking the first step, just starting to break the pieces. Let me end with a story. Back home, I was um, so overwhelmed with this challenge in the early years of our church when God spoke to us about engaging our community and our society, and I was talking about the city and, and God's purposes for the city and calling us to the city. And, and I, 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 some of the people in the church were really getting frustrated with all my city talk and and so uh, some of the police guys that were worshiping in the church came to me and said, Alan, you're always talking about the city. Do you know how bad the city really is? I said, no, please educate me. They said, we'd love to. Would you please come Friday night at 12 at night to the downtown inner city police station, and we'll give you a, a quick rundown on what's happening and take you on a tour. So I got a few leaders together, and we went Friday night, and uh, they gave us this information session and then loaded us up in this little bus, and they were taking us to all the bad places in the city. They really wanted to shock me. So every den of iniquity they could find, they were taking me to, you know. So I walked into places that I'd never been in my life, and I walked into one, and somebody recognized me. Hello, pastor. I said, I'll see you in church on Sunday. And... <laughs> But here's the amazing thing. As we were traveling through the streets of Pretoria, there were literally hundreds of people lying out on the pavements. And I said to the policeman, I said, what are these people doing here? He said, they sleep here. And kind of with an attitude in my heart, I said, why do you allow it? And then he said something that rocked my world. He said, because they have nowhere else to go. 
I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that there were actually people in my city laying out on the pavements. You see, I stayed out in the suburbs. I, had n- I was totally unaware. And then it shocked me. I thought, if I'm so unaware, what are the other things that I might be unaware of in my city? And so I started asking this question, how can I engage this reality? And so going back to the church, the church wanted us to give feedback. And so I shared with them my experience and told them about my experience with the people laying out. And I remember preaching that Sunday and I remember making this statement and saying, folks, before we get all hung up about the sin of our city, let's do something about the pain of our city. And I preached that morning, I preached a very good sermon. On Tuesday, I was at the office. Somebody arrives there, has two homeless guys. He finds me and he says, so Alan, what do we do now? I look at him and I say, what do you mean? He says, well, I got these guys. What what are we going to do? I said, well, why would you bring them here? He says, well, you told us to make a difference, right? I said, yeah, sure, I told you to make a difference, but I didn't think you were going to bring them to me. And then I realized, suddenly it dawned on me, it's so easy to talk. But now we've got to get engaged. And so I said, okay, we'll do something. We're going to find a place. And so we found a place for these people, and the rumors started rolling in the church. And so other people started bringing more people. And so I said, no, 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 that's not the idea. But they kept on bringing people. And so we realized we better find another place. And so long story short, we found this dilapidated old building wrong side of the city. It was just a disaster. And so we, we, I came back to the church and said, exciting, I've got a building. Would you help us fix it? It's in this neighborhood, but it's okay we're going to do something and just a few people were willing and so we went and we started fixing up the building and then we started loading it up with people. We had no idea what we were doing. Suddenly I realized over a hundred people in the building, I've just concentrated problems in one location that I cannot handle. I had no idea what I was doing and I realized I can't just keep the people here. We better train these people. We, we better skill them. We better get them jobs. We better get, get them back into society. And so we started inquiring, how do you go about that? What can we do? We started teaching people vocational skills. And right now, we have a, the premier vocational skills training program in our nation, training people in 18 different vocational skills, putting them into jobs, taking a thousand people through that program every year, and 70% of those people, for the first time in their lives, write out their personal testimony of receiving Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Why am I sharing this with you? Very simply, very simply, we just started breaking the pieces. We didn't have all the answers. We didn't know how to do it. We just started breaking the pieces. Let me pray for you. Father, you are the author of the love that drives us, the compassion that arrests our heart. I pray for every individual in this place. I pray for this church. May you truly, through this body, manifest your grace for this whole region.
We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.